You're listening to another episode of Lords of Limited with your hosts Ben Worney and Ethan Sachs. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Lords of Limited. My name is Ben Worney, and joining me on the line is Ethan Sachs. Ethan, how are you doing this evening? Ben, I am tired from a long few days of work, but I am so pumped to record another episode with you. How are you doing? Podcast is great. I'm doing well. Uh, fresh off GP Indie, I got home like a little afternoon this morning and uh, been taking it easy today and recuperating getting ready for school tomorrow. Yeah, I can't wait to dive in to how the weekend was for you. But before we get into that, maybe we should do a little trophy leaderboard update. Yeah. How's, how's the old leaderboard been going for you? Well, unlike you, I did not have to prep any sealed for this weekend, so I've just been continuing jamming drafts. Though, with all the sealed going on on Twitch this week, I sort of was getting a little hankering. It was, like, hard for me. I was like, maybe I should join a sealed, and then I just kept remembering how much I hated it. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not going to do that. Uh, so, But I've been sort of uh, in two on Purgatory. Um, only gained three trophies in the past week, so up to 46 now. Still fifth place in the leaderboard uh with 163 drafts with a third 314 to 152 win loss record of 67 percent win rate how about you yeah mine is exactly the same because i've done zero drafts because i was doing sealed for gpne prep so i'm still at 23 trophies uh 178 overall record 86 drafts and a 68 percent win rate in my seals i went three and two four and one and two and oh in my third and i didn't i haven't finished that yet plan to finish that so overall i was nine and three which is pretty good that's pretty sweet okay so i want to start there with talking about your like intro into the gp weekend so you did about it sounds like two and a half sealed pools yeah online uh and i was three for three on opening gods which was <laughs> must be <laughs> a pretty nice. good place to be yeah and then we got to the GP. I traveled up with Master Jareth on Friday, took the day off school, mm -hmm. and they do this thing called last chance trials for the GPs where you can try to earn buys. So if you, it's 32 man sealed events that fire on demand, and if you 5-0 one of those, like they go five rounds, so if you go undefeated, essentially like winning a pre-release, I think most stores do pre-releases like five rounds or whatever, mm -hmm. you earn two buys for the GP. So I also did three of those on Friday because I scrubbed out of all of them. I went, uh, they were single <laughs> elimination. I went uh, 01, 01, and then one and one in my third one. So I did, Jeez. I built, I built like six or seven sealed pools in preparation for the GP. Uh, I listened to the LR sealed episode, talked with people that had done some sealed, and I watched a little of Darkest Mage and Semulin. Nice. So what, going into the GP, what was your impression of the sealed format? I really liked the five color green deck i think if you get a pool with the fixing for it and the bombs i think that deck's really really good the problem i was having with some of the sealed pools i did was that they were like super close to a good four or five color deck but maybe missing a few pieces of fixing or didn't have the premium fixing in oasis mm -hmm. ritualist and gift of paradise and i think if you didn't get those pieces it was kind of hard to build that deck and master jareth and i think I agree with him, uh, was on, well, maybe not quite all the way. He was on, like, wanting to be two colors, like, actively wanting to be two colors, aggressive, removal, just, like, no business, try to get the people dead that were dirtling around with five colors. And I think the 9-0 decklist from GP Indy sort of bore that out a little bit, like, his his idea of the format. Interesting. So the 9-0 decklists, for the most part, were two colors. There was one four-color deck. There was one three-color deck. The others were straight black-red uh, that just looked like 
decks with good curves had premium removal in like open fires, lethal stings, torment of venoms. Each of the black red decks, one of them had an archfiend of Ifnir, one of them had a glory bringer. So they had like on color bombs, like that were five drop type bombs that like ended the game when they came down and just seemed like, I don't know. When I looked at the deck list, they seemed like above average deck lists, but not insane to me. Like decks that just would have been super consistent, could interact with the opponent and then had some of their own on color bombs. Yeah, as someone who has not done a lot of seals nor watched a lot of seals, I would imagine with the quality of rares and mythics in the format that that those fixing that it would be a lot of uh, bomb centric decks that the fixing would sort of be what drove decks to have good win records because they'd be able to cast their nutty bombs that were opened. But maybe that's not always true. Yeah, I don't know. That that's what I would have thought too. I would have expected the top deck lists, the five, the nine zero decks or whatever, to be like really insane five color green decks with the fixing and the bombs to go with it Hmm. like your sandworm convergences and your sifter worms etc yeah all right so so you did some prep unfortunately scrubbed out of getting any buys so you got to wake up bright and early on saturday as someone who has not played in any sort of like professional level tournament like this can you sort of talk through what that like start of the day is like yeah um i was actually i'm somebody that likes to be hyper prepared for things well that's not true uh <laughs> or like super on time for stuff the there's a, like a direct correlation between how much i care about what i'm doing and how prepared i like to be so if i'm not like super invested in it i'm fine with being like 10 minutes late or not being on time or not being very prepared but for something that really matters to me i'm like super hyper like want everything planned out to the detail uh, and i think that goes back to like clarinet playing and doing auditions and things like that i've always really struggled with nerves when i'm performing like i love performing like i have a master's degree in clarinet performance but i that stemmed from like me wanting to play the instrument more than like that i really enjoyed performing for an audience Mm -hmm. it's like when i would go do an audition i would have all my reads laid out the night before like ranked in order of 1 to 20 and i would have i would know exactly what i was going to do like how i was going to warm up what i was going to play you know so i did all that stuff for the gp the night before because i was I don't play much paper magic, so I didn't have a plan for like sleeves or tokens or any of that nonsense. Like I didn't have a play mat. So I had in my backpack, like everything planned out, like what I was going to do. I had my basic lands. Like when I showed up at the GP trials, I didn't have basic lands with me and they provide basic lands for you there. But like everybody else that was playing the last chance qualifiers had like their fancy beta lands or their like matching lands that they brought with them to put in their decks. So like, I built my sealed pool and you only have 30 minutes. And I was like, uh, lands? Like, what do we do about that? And he looked at me like, you didn't bring lands with you? <laughs> and I was like, no. <laughs> so I had to like walk down the GP hall to the land box and like walk back. And nobody, nobody else was doing it. So I had all my basic lands. I was all set, ready to go. And then I wanted to get there about like a half an hour ahead of time. So I left. I, I stayed with my brother in Zionsville the night before. And so the stuff started at the GP at nine o'clock. Like that was when the players meeting was. So I was planning to get there around 8.20, left his house at 7.50. It's 30-minute drive. So I, I do that. I'm getting there, driving down Capitol Avenue, like two minutes away from the GP. And I stop at a stoplight, and there's a marathon going by. <laughs> so like, and it hadn't been going by very long. I'm looking at this police officer. He looks at me and like tells me to turn right. Well, I don't want to turn right. Like, I want to go straight to the GP. Mm-hmm. So I sit there like for a couple minutes, and he looks at me. And finally, I'm like, all right, well, this is obviously going on for a while. So I turn right, and then I run into traffic not going anywhere for about 10 minutes. So at this point, it's like uh, 8.30, 8.35. And I'm starting to get a little anxious about making it to the GP. 
And so I think, well, so this is on the northwest side of Indy. I know Indianapolis fairly well. So I think, all right, I'm going to go around down to the south side and see if I can come in from the south. So I turn around. Apparently, lots of other people had the same idea. Ran into another traffic jam. Got off that road. By this time, it's like 20 till. And I'm like starting to get fairly stressed. So I try to go up Circle Center Mall, like from the southeast side. And I don't know if this was because of the marathon or not, but I had stopped traffic. Like bumper to bumper was not moving. So like I'm super hyped for this GP. <laughs> and I'm sitting in traffic and then it's like 10 till I'm thinking like, all right, I, I might not make this GP. So clock ticks up to nine o'clock, which is when the players meeting starts. I'm still stuck in traffic, like literally walking distance, like two minutes from the GP, but I can't just abandon my car in the middle of the road. Right. So like 902 or something like traffic frees up and I drive. I find the nearest parking garage. Don't know like how expensive it is. Park run to the GP, like Ugh. full tilt, like for like five minutes, get there heaving out of breath at like nine ten. Everyone's already kind of like sitting down. They're handing out the product, getting ready to start the registration process when I sat down. So I made it, but I was like super frazzled. That sucks. That's a terrible way to start. Yeah, but I did make it, which was awesome. So like once I actually, re- once I got there and I was like, all right, I'm going to get to do this. Like I was relieved. I was still a little frazzled, but like when I was stuck in traffic, I was in full-on exclamation point why me mode. <laughs> like, <laughs> rest in peace. Here lies Ben Warning. Like, why is this happening to me? But I still held out a little hope because I figured if it was happening to me, it was happening to other people. And, like, maybe they would push back the start time. But they didn't really seem to do that. So, barely made it. Uh, but we we got there in time. So, what happens? So, you, you get six packs and you just open them up and build your pool? Is that how it works? Yeah, sort of. It's not that neat so you you get a box with like a waiver that you have to sign for the gp saying that you're over 18 and you have to register your pool have you ever done that before no never so you you get like a checklist that's double-sided one side's amonkhet one side's our devastation and you're, you're paired up like with somebody across the table from you and you open your packs in front of them to show them that they're like legitimate packs with rares and whatnot mm-hmm. and then they open their packs in front of you and then you exchange card pools and they are responsible for writing down every card that you opened and checking it off on the checklist and you're responsible for writing down every card they opened and checking it off on the checklist and then once you do that you pass it back and then you have to decide what you're going to play and then you have 30 minutes after you pass the stuff back so you're supposed to check that they registered your pool accurately in this 30 minutes build your deck and mark on the the registered pool which cards you're playing. So you have to mark down like lands, the 23 cards you're playing, and you have to start with that same 40 cards every round. Or you can get, I don't know, something bad can happen to you, a game loss, I don't really know. Which is a lot in 30 minutes. Yeah, that is a lot in 30 minutes. I hadn't considered all that other like rigmarole besides the actual just like deck building. Yeah, I was very glad that I did the last chance trials under a timer and i wish a couple people had suggested that i practice building sealed pools on magic online in under 30 minutes but Mm -hmm. i don't even think that's very realistic because like actually having to deal with all the paper cards and sort them out yourself takes so much more time than like right clicking sort by rarity right click (laughs) sort by converted mana cost right i would practice if you were seriously planning to go to a gp i would recommend practicing with physical cards building a pool in under 30 minutes and maybe figuring out like some sort of a registration system because it's it's a pain in the butt you have to alphabetize and then if your opponents not your opponents the person across from you didn't alphabetize like checking what they registered is a pain and that like impacts into your time like i literally in one of the trials one of the people across from me it's easiest to check it off if you alphabetized it so he alphabetized it 
and then when he was done shuffled it like, I'm, <laughs> I'm like i'm assuming because he wanted me to have like a harder time checking it off so that i had less time to build my sealed pool like so it's just like really classy and so for those who didn't follow you on twitter how did the day go for you the actual gp yeah, and like your your pool, like what what did you look down at? What did you end up building? Yeah, my my pool was very good. I think it was like a well above average pool. Like I would have given it like I didn't do much seal practice, but the seal practice I did do I think was very helpful. I would have given it like an eight or a nine out of ten. Wow. My rares were the Locust God, Regal Caracal, Dune Beetle, Double Obelisk Spider. Essentially, essentially my pool was like a very good five color green deck and i don't think there was really even another like reasonable two color build in the pool i would have to go back and look but i had double i had double manolith gift of paradise evolving wilds did you have any amulets no amulets a lot of good gold cards i had a river hoopoo i had farm to market i had start to finish i had solid removal just rock solid dudes i had a ramionap hydra that was one of my rares it was just a very good very good five color pool um, it had removal, it had like late game in the Locust God, Decimator Beetle, it also had just had, and my mana was great because it was really truly base green. And then black was kind of my secondary color. And then everything else was like splashes of like three to four cards of that color. And I had six sources of every other type of color. So my splashes were all like very legitimate. And I even was not greedy and didn't play my Regal Caracal. So I figured the way my deck was going to lose was by people curving out on me. So I figured I would side it in if I knew the matchups were going to go go way late. Yeah. But I had my own threats. I had interaction. I had good removal. I thought it was a, a great pool. I and mean, I think I built correctly or close to correctly. Round one, I won against an opponent that was not very good. Uh, and then it started to go <laughs> rapidly downhill from there. <laughs> I just struggled all all day to draw lands. I kept keeping two land hands with a manolith and not drawing my third land for like three or four or five turns. Oof. Like that happened to me. This is not an exaggeration. At least five times, like over the course of a course of the weekend, and I I kept having to mulligan, and I think I mulliganed well, and not due to like being greedy with colors, but just like only having one land in my opening hand or having no lands in my opening hand. So I ended up I was one and zero, one and one, one and two, one and three, and then my round five didn't opponent didn't show up, so I was two and three because <laughs> I nice. essentially got to buy that round, and then round six I lost two and four and then i dropped after being two and four because you have to go x and three you have to go six and three to make day two gotcha well that's a total bummer i'm sure uh it was well it was a bummer because i thought my pool was really good so initially after opening and building i was like super excited because sealed like i feel like they think there's a lot of play skill involved in sealed and i think there's a lot of skill involved in building your pool correctly uh like it was really mm-hmm. interesting watching Semulan stream like i asked him at one point he was streaming i asked him how good he thought his pool was like to rate it out of 10 and he said, well, I'm not really interested in rating the pool because that's not very productive. Like, you don't have control over your pool. So what I like to do is, like, rate out of 10 how well you built your pool. Like, did you build correctly? Are you a 10 out of 10 for the build in your pool? Were you suboptimal? Did you build 5 out of 10? Um, so I thought that was a really interesting way to approach sealed. And, like, I was trying to frame my my preparation in that mindset because I like to obviously focus on things that are in my control. Yeah, that's really smart. Yeah, as a rational human being. I sort of forgot what the question was. I got distracted there a little bit. No, it's all good. I was just uh, asking about, like, just saying that that must have been a, a bummer. Yeah, uh, it was It was a bummer because I thought the pool was good. And then, like, I didn't run well. So it felt bad to run bad in an event, like, that I was super excited for like that. It was pretty high stakes. Yeah. 
But, I mean, it was still, like, a great weekend. There was a lot of good stuff that went on as well. Were there any other, like, big takeaways from the weekend other than just, like, the actual round-to-round playing? Any other things that were big standouts? Yeah, it was just the atmosphere was super cool. Like, at the convention center, you walk in and the the exhibit hall or whatever it would be called, the ballroom in the convention center was, like, gigantic. And, like, on the second day, like, on Saturday, the actual day of the GP, not day two since I didn't make day two, <laughs> Uh, the actual day of the GP, like the pros like started wandering in like so between rounds, like you might be trying to find your friends or whatever. And like Huey and Owen and Reed are just like sitting there talking, <laughs> which was like super, super cool. Uh, just like seeing Marshall and Kenji doing coverage and like all the people that you've experienced online just actually being there in person. And I think the coolest part about the GP for me was like, even though it ended up like not like having a great result, like after I started after I had a good pool and I started 1-0, just dreaming about like, what if I go 4-0 and I get a featured match and it's against Owen or, you know, like yeah. just having the the hope that like you're going to get to do the same thing that those pros are doing. That was by far the coolest part of the GP for me. But on, on that same note, like I also like have kind of harbored for a long time, like maybe the secret dream that I'm going to make the pro tour and like get to be a pro magic player and doing, doing the GP this weekend kind of killed that dream for me <laughs> I, I had a lot of fun but it was a really long tiring weekend and paper magic versus online magic was just not not great for me what do you mean i think you know we both we both are primarily magic online players paper magic is just just messy uh as far as i'm concerned compared to online magic like the first thing that comes to mind is the shuffler for me like i don't i don't know how you are i, I trust the magic online shuffler implicitly like never yeah. once have i felt like whatever the shuffler hates me or whatever like you're just gonna mulligan and that's that i trust that the shuffler is randomizing my deck would you agree i do agree yes so when i was like over the course of the gp when i was shuffling myself which is this is not rational at all but like after round two when i got stuck on like two lands manolith in hand and didn't draw my third land Mm -hmm. two games in a row i was thinking like god are there land clumps in my deck that like (laughs) i'm not shuffling out you know what i mean like because they're the actual paper cards like to where like maybe maybe a flaw in how i shuffle is like causing me to run bad which just is nonsense like my deck's randomized you know i shuffle a bunch between rounds and i'm a good shuffler but like that kind of doubt was creeping into my brain which would never happen to me on magic online and another thing is just like the judge thing was a little weird like playing against opponents yeah, did you have to call a judge? I did several. I called a judge like three or four times over the course of the weekend. Wow. And I really appreciate like a lot of people when they were giving advice about the GP were saying, don't be afraid to call a judge. And I really appreciate that because even with that advice, every time I called a judge, I felt awkward and uncomfortable about it. <laughs> yeah. So in round three, my opponent drew eight cards to start the game. And then I was looking at his hand and I thought he had eight cards in his hand. And then he drew his card for the turn. So he had nine cards. And I said, hang, hang on a second. Did you start the game with eight cards in your hand? And he like counted and was like, oh, yeah, I did. And he was like, let me let me just put one back. <laughs> oh. And I was like, no, no, we need to call a judge. And so I called a judge and he'd already like put his hand back in his deck because he was just going to shuffle and like, I don't know. I think he just didn't want me to call a judge. Uh, so the judge said it was a force mulligan and he had to draw six cards, but like he felt bad. I don't think he did it on purpose, but I don't, I'll never know. Like, right. And then I felt like I had to watch him the rest of the game to make sure he didn't do anything else. You know what I mean? It's like at least 10% of my mental energy was devoted towards like making sure he wasn't cheating. Oh my God. That is not something I have ever thought that I would have to do. 
Yeah, well, and it's just it's impossible on Magic Online, right? Sure, like, sure. You're never worried about that. And later in round five, like, I'm, I'm really curious to get your opinion on this. My opponent didn't untap their lands. So, like, they drew their card for the turn and were, like, thinking about what to do in their main phase and then went to do something in their main phase and then, like, untapped their creature and untapped their lands and uh-huh. then did what they wanted to do, which yeah. seemed, like, off to me. Seems like if you're at a competitive REL event, you should remember to untap your lands. So I called a judge. And I guess there's a rule where lands have to untap, which I didn't know. Right. Yeah, that I do know. Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't know that. So the judge gave my opponent a warning. And then shortly later, same game, same person, my opponent played a Torment of Scarabs enchanting me. Mm-hmm. And earlier in the in the GP trials, I had cast a Torment of Scarabs on my opponent. And they went to their turn and drew a card. And I said, no, wait, you need to do your Torment of Scarabs thing. And so we called a judge because they'd already had the card in their hand, which they'd seen, which impacted the discarding effect of Torment of Scarabs. So right. the judge the judge ruled that I had missed my trigger and that it didn't happen that turn. What? Which felt off to me. The opponent said it was uh, the judge said it was my job to remember since I was the controller of the card and that it was, was going to be gone and I had to remember it and that the judge wasn't going to penalize me <laughs> for missing the trigger. Uh, since it since it benefited my opponent i was thinking oh gee great i figured (laughs) it was on my opponent like to also help hold the game state and it wasn't like i forgot to do it i just assumed they were going to do it before they drew (laughs) since i'd put it on their side of the battlefield so fast forward to day two me against his opponent he enchants me with torment of scarabs i really want to know if you think i was angle shooting here because it felt crummy Uh uh so he enchanted me my turn i say untap i say upkeep and I pause for like four or five seconds, and then I say draw, and then I take my turn. And at the end of my turn, my opponent said, uh, did you do the Torment of Scarabs thing? And I said, no, I think that's your trigger. I think it's your responsibility to remember it. And he like obviously was very tilted at that and really angry. And I said, well, we can call a judge if you want. Like this happened to me yesterday in the, the GP trials. And since I had just called the judge on him, I don't think he was comfortable doing it. But he was really upset. And I just felt like an awful human being for doing yeah, it. Yeah, that makes I'm I feel that I'm not even associated with this in any way and I feel gross right now. I have like a feeling in my stomach. Yeah, I felt I felt miserable. Like I felt like the worst cuz I'm not like that kind of person, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I am really competitive and it had happened to me the day before and if that was the ruling, like I don't know, I wasn't going to remind my opponent. So, and then the next turn he missed it again. So I reminded him. I said, "Look, you missed this again. Like I'm going to do it." but I'm not going to remind you anymore. So then he remembered after that and he ended up winning the match. So like, it wasn't, you know, I guess a huge deal, except like it really negatively impacted my GP experience. And I think it really negatively impacted his GP experience. And something like that would just never happen on magic online. Yeah. Because it always happens, right? Yeah. It always happens. There's, you can't miss that trigger. Yeah. I don't know what the right answer is there. I think it feels like the right answer is the thing that makes you feel the least gross. I don't know. I, I felt awful about it. Yeah. Just absolutely awful. So that was why I reminded him the second time. I don't know. It was just, yeah. it was just, that was like, right, that thing right there was like the worst part of the weekend for me. <laughs> yeah, that really, that puts it really in a nice little neat package of like why Paper Magic is way messier than Magic Online. Um, so, I, and I would be curious if other people have feedback, if you want to email or tweet at me, uh, please don't tell me I'm a terrible person because I really like, <laughs> and to my opponent, I really, if you know who I am or you listen to the podcast, I really apologize. It was just, yeah, it was really unpleasant. So that kind of thing. And then like I was missing land drops all day. So 
<laughs> funny story here real quick round two i'm missing my land drops my opponent went turn one uh dread wander the two one one drop in black mm-hmm. turn two steward of solidarity planes mm-hmm. turn three mountain resolute survivors mm-hmm. turn four forest quarry hauler Jeez. <laughs> and then and then after i went to my end step three or four times after doing the same thing in game one he said oh you decided not to show up and play magic today huh like <laughs> why would you like i think he was uh, just awkward and feeling bad like so he felt the need to say something about it but like right i don't know you know people rage in magic online or whatever but like that doesn't bother me at all because i just closed the chat window but like mm-hmm. a person being there like that's talking to you it's harder to like just ignore them you know what i mean yeah so that was kind of something else that happened to me. It was funny. Yeah, tough to... I feel like people process, like, tilt in so many different ways, or, like, those field bads in so many different ways. Like, why would you... If you're the one winning, I feel like you shouldn't be the one to, like, put something out there. Yeah, I've never... Like, I've never... You know, people always talk about, like, when to shake hands or whatever, like, mm-hmm. GG's. Like, I've never really thought about that debate at all until I played in this live event, like, and that kind of stuff was happening to me. So I feel like yeah. I can relate to that discussion a little more. I still don't really have an opinion. Yeah. Uh, I feel like I can identify a little bit more with that discussion now. And the, the other thing that was interesting just was, like, space. Like, I didn't have a play mat, so, like, my space was not as clearly defined as other people's. And my life got infinitely better once I realized that I should put my life pad on the right uh, because I kept having to reach over to my left to write life totals down. And mm-hmm. then when I moved my life pad to my right, my life got infinitely better. Are you left-handed? No, I'm right-handed. Oh. So it was dumb to have it on the left. But that didn't <laughs> that didn't occur to me until like a couple matches into <laughs> day one. So just if you're like a magic online person, I think the number one thing I should have done more of was practice playing paper magic. Interesting. Just like the triggers and things like that. I had to devote so much mental energy to remembering like what to do with the physical cards and dice and counters and exert markers. And I I think I would want more of that to be automatic next time I go to a GP. I think I would play a lot more paper magic if I could in practice. That's great. Is there anything else from the weekend you want to talk about? No, I think that was it. It was it was really cool. Uh, Twitter people, thank you very much uh, for following me on Twitter and for saying words of encouragement. Uh, when the GP was not going well, I enjoyed, I didn't enjoy posting my record. I felt like I was letting people down a little bit, but I really enjoyed like opening Twitter up then the next round and seeing that people had liked it or said, hang in there or like hang tough or whatever, you'll get it. Like that was really awesome. So really appreciate everyone that was tuned in and rooting for me. And the other thing that was really cool was just meeting a couple other streamers. Uh, Ryan F was there and Melvin the Muppet. So I met them uh, and they were both super cool in person to talk to. Nice. That was another like really awesome aspect about the GP. Yeah. So yeah, I think that that kind of sums up the weekend. Uh, Overall, I think positive, but not something I'm in a hurry to do (laughs) soon. But in three months, I would be excited about going again. Sweet. And there's a there's a team GP, right? In like January or something. I think so. Yeah. Sweet. Be geared up for that one. Yeah, for sure. All right, so for the roundtable this week, we're going to do something pretty similar to what we did uh, when the Pro Tour was out. So hot off the heels of day two drafts of GP Indy, we're going to take a look at Ben Stark's draft. Now, was this this was the second draft of the day? Is that right? Yep, this was second draft of the day. All right, Ben, so alternate universe, you're sitting down to the second draft in day two of GP Indy, okay? Yeah. All right, so you crack open your first pack. And you take a look at the following cards. You've got Avon of Enduring Hope, the 4 and a white 3-3 that, when it comes into play, uh, gains you 3 life. It also has flying. Uh, Manolith, 3 colorless. 
artifact that taps to add any color of mana to your mana pool. Torment of Venom, two black black. Uh, put three minus one minus one counters on target creature, and your opponent has to lose three life, discard a card, or sack a non-land permanent. Doomfall, two and a black for the card that has choose one. Target player exiles a creature, or target player reveals their hand. You choose a non-land card from it, and they exile it. Manticore Eternal, that's the three red red for the five four zombie that has to attack every turn and has afflict three. Ominous Sphinx, three blue blue for the four four flyer uh, that has whenever you cycle a card or discard a card, you can have target creature get minus two minus zero oh until end of turn. And Razaketh the Foul Blooded, that's the five black 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 for the eight eight flying trample that has the activated ability of pay two life, sack a creature, demonic tutor. So search your library for a card, put it into your hand. What do you like here? I think for me it's pretty clearly ominous sphinx as the best card in the pack and i think i think ben s thought so as well that was that was the card he took yeah uh i don't think there's much to talk about here ominous sphinx first for you and then torment of venom second does that seem right yeah i I think that seems right to me and then i think i would be on aven of enduring hope after that yeah i don't know it's tough between aven and manticore eternal i think but i like i like aven a lot and we i think we, we both are pretty excited about that aven these days um, all right, so you, you pick up Ominous Sphinx. Looking down at pack two notable cards are you've got another Manolith, you've got the common blue Cycling Desert, you've got another Torment of Venom, you've got a Spellweaver Eternal, that's the one and a blue for the 2-1 Prowess and Afflict 2 creature. You've got Kenra Scrapper, that's the two and a red for the 2-3 Menace that has Exert to get plus 2 plus 0 oh until end of turn. And Sunset Pyramid, that's the two colorless artifact that has three counters on it. You can pay two to tap it to remove a counter to draw a card, or you can just pay two and tap it to scry one yeah this pack i was watching ben s do this live while i was making the notes for the show and it was very close for me between spellweaver eternal and sunset pyramid and i ended up settling on sunset pyramid i think before that's what ben s took also spoilers uh, before he did mostly because i don't think ominous sphinx necessarily needs to go in blue red spells so it feels a little early to me to be taking a Spellweaver Eternal over a card as powerful as Sunset Pyramid when Ominous Sphinx goes very well into a control strategy as well. I also think it's important to say, like, don't get married to your first pick. You might not end up in blue. Like, yeah, there's a blue desert here and a Spellweaver, but, like, I mean, if we're talking about, like, raw power level, again, I think you rank these cards as Sunset Pyramid first, Torment of Venom second, and then probably even Kenra Scrapper third, though I think with you having a blue card in your pile, you probably take Spellweaver over Kenra Scrapper because the power level there is kind of similar. But I I really think taking Sunset Pyramid here is correct. So would you take, if Sunset Pyramid were out of the equation, would you take Torment over Spellweaver? Because I would not. I would take Spellweaver. I would take Torment over Spellweaver. That's interesting. I think for the first few picks, you really don't want to take nox to power level for like whatever quote-unquote signaling or cutting a color this is also coming off of a lot of drafts these days where i first pick like a sifter worm and then get cut out of green because no one lets me play green anymore (laughs) so i just think you you really gotta be open and read the table and if i miss out on a spellweaver eternal here and blue ends up being open oh well but like I'm not. I'm doing myself a disservice here. I think if I take Spellweaver over cards that are more powerful than it. All right, fair enough. All right, so you've got Ominous Sphinx and Sunset Pyramid in your pile. Pick three. Uh, we've got another Manticore Eternal, uh, Vizier of the True. This is the three and a white for the three two that uh, says whenever you exert a creature, you may tap target creature and opponent controls. The Green Cycling Desert. 
Beneath the Sands, that's two and a green for the Rampant Growth that has two colorless to cycle the card. Got the Gilded Ceridon, four and a red, that has uh, the Desert Matters. If you control a desert or it's in your graveyard, you can make target creature not block this turn. And Ronus' Stalwart, one and a green for the 2-2 that has Exert. When it attacks, you uh, may have it get plus one, plus one, and it can't be blocked by creatures with power two or less. This is hard to do for memory. <laughs> and I'm just like literally reading the card names and trying to remember what do they do. And uh, we have Doomfall as well. So Manticore Eternal, Vizier of the True, Green Desert, Ronus' Stalwart, and Doomfall. What do you like here? I was also, and I was glad to see uh, that I agreed with Benes here. I was on Vizier of the True, uh, and that's what he took as well. So, so far, I'm three for three on picks with, with Benes. Yeah, and you uh, you were saying, I think, maybe, I think it was on stream, maybe not in draft, but we, Ben Stark had posted a, like, what's the pick, pack one, pick one article on Channel Fireball sometime last week, or maybe it was two weeks ago, and you were like, I do not agree with any of his picks here. Yeah, I was totally all over the place with him. Huey and I on the pack one pick twos and the pack one pick ones have been on the same page every time. Yeah. Benes, though, the one, yeah, I was way off from him. So it was nice to see that my picks were lining up with his here. Yeah, so no blue card here for Ben. And I think he's just going with the what's the best card in the pack. And Vizier of the True seems to be the clear choice for both you and he. The Bens are in agreement here. All right, moving on to pick four. We've got Wretched Camel. That's the one in a black for the two one. Desert Matters Synergy when it dies target player discards a card sandblast two and a white for the deal five damage to target attacking or blocking creature instant hope tender one and a green for the two two pay one and tap it to untap a land and pay one exert tap it to untap two lands white cycling desert ipnu rivulet that's the blue uncommon desert that can mill four for sacrificing deserts and steadfast sentinel is it two white white or three and a white three and a white yeah yeah, three and a white. Three and a white for the two three vigilance that has uh, eternalize for four white white. Yeah, this was I think a lot tougher pick. Cards in consideration really I think are sandblast, hope tender, and white desert. Again, he's not seeing much blue to go along with ominous sphinx. There is the ipnu rivulet, but I think you can probably rule that out because he hasn't seen great blue in picks two or pick three. Mm-hmm. Um, so then it it settles on if you want to take a white card to go along with the vizier of the tree, you just picked sandblast or white desert. I think I'm on White Desert of those two if we were picking a white card. Do you agree? Oh, yeah. I think White Desert over Sandblast for sure. So then it comes down to me between Hope Tender and White Desert. I think I like Hope Tender more than most, and I really like Green. Mm -hmm. I was between Hope Tender and White Desert, and I never really made an official pick before I saw Ben make his pick, which was Hope Tender. I think left to my own devices, I probably would have picked White Desert there. Yeah. I mean, I think this goes along with how I'm feeling about green just drying up fast. And I would imagine it the second draft of a GP that you've got a lot of smart players there and someone or some few people have carved out multicolor green, good stuff as a deck they want to draft and maybe hope tender just like went past for an Oasis ritualist, but I would not take this as a green signal as I once did. And I'd be pretty happy to take white desert here to pair with my vizier of the true. Yeah. So that, that was a close pick. I think certainly would not fault anybody for taking Hope Tender there, and I might have taken it myself. All right, pick five. We got another Manolith, another Aven of Enduring Hope, Black Cycling Desert, Devotee of Strength. That's the two and a green uncommon 3 2 creature that has four and a green to give something plus two plus two until end of turn. Obelisk Spider, one black green for the one four reach that has. Uh, 
Whenever you put a minus one, minus one counter on something, target player loses a life and you gain a life. And whenever it deals damage to a creature, you put a minus one, minus one counter on that creature and then unsummon one blue to bounce something at instant speed. What do you think? It's probably pretty clearly even of Enduring Hope, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a Vizier the True. I think it's the best card in the pack there. I mean, maybe Obelisk Spider is slightly better, but Obelisk Spider has not done too much for me, and Ben is pretty far away from that. Cards he's got in his pile right now are Ominous Sphinx, Sunset Pyramid, Vizier the True, and Hope Tender. Right. So he's got a blue card, a white card, a green card, and a colorless card. And I think Avon is better than Devotee of Strength, in my mind, even though he just picked Hope Tender. Yeah. Um, so I think I'd be on Avon of Enduring Hope here, and that's what Ben picked also. For sure. Uh, do you want to run through how the rest of this pack shook out for Ben? Yeah. Pick six, he took a Harrier Naga. I, I did not agree with this pick. This was a really hard pick. His choices were Oblo Spider, Ruin Rat, Gilded Ceridon, Wretched Camel, Accursed Horde. There were zero blue cards in the pack. Dutiful Servants was the only white card. So I don't know what he was supposed to pick here, but I wouldn't have picked Harrier Naga, I don't think. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I would have done. It was just a miserable pack. Yeah. So that was kind of a throwaway pick. And then pick seven, he got a Dauntless Avon fairly late uh, and then solidified himself in white. Wield an Avon of Enduring Hope, which I think is a great signal because uh, that was one of the better cards out of his opening pack, I think. Mm-hmm. So wielding that was a big sign that white was open. So he's solidly in white at the end of pack one, has the Ominous Sphinx really as his only playable blue card, has a couple green cards. And then pack two, pick one, he opened uh, Kefnet's Last Word. And an Oketra's Avenger took Kefnet's last word over the Oketra's Avenger, I think, and decided he was blue white. And it was really interesting to me that after that, taking Kefnet's last word, he just decided I'm blue white, which I think probably is the time to do it. But I thought that was really cool that after that, he only started pulling blue and white cards to the front. He stayed open, read that white was open, and I think he was probably assuming that since he didn't pass blue, he could get the blue hookup going this direction and then pack three would be hoping to pick up white i would assume that was what was going through his head Mm -hmm. does that seem reasonable to you yeah for sure i mean i think kefnet's last word is probably one of the best cards in the set or maybe one of the best blue cards in the set and i think like that plus an ominous sphinx you don't need a lot more blue cards to make blue your secondary color in your deck and you to be pretty happy about that right so he ended up in pack two getting some good blue and white cards got a fairly late deserts hold pick five um, which was great. Yeah, that's good. I saw that. That's crazy. Yeah, going into pack three, his deck was like average, maybe slightly above average, uh, and really needed some two drops. And then <laughs> pack three gave him the hookup. Pack one, pick one, Gustwalker over cast out, which I think was right, and that was debated a lot in chat. And then pick two, Easy Glory Bound Initiate, which is the rare exerter that turns into a 4 4, four lifelinker. Mm hmm. Pick three, Gustwalker, my notes, dot, dot, dot. This is how you become a pro. Yeah. <laughs> Pack four, <laughs> Avon Wind Guide, which is the blue-white uncommon. He might have tried to wield that. He could have also taken a Retcrop Spearmaster over that. And then pack three, pick five, another Gustwalker, dot, 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 vomit. <laughs> in yeah. the show notes. Like, it was, like, but I do think, for like, in his defense, like, people were just saying he got lucky in chat. And yes, he did get lucky, but he also put himself in a position to get lucky. Uh, I think he correctly identified in pack one that white was open, moved in, and then was lucky in the sense that like three Gustwalkers were open in five packs. But because they were and because he read that white was open, he got them. So I think he I think he drafted really well and got rewarded for how well he drafted. Yeah, for sure. Really interesting draft off the heels of our uh, episode last week, man. I'm just lo- loving blue white these days. Yeah, it's been it's been very good for me as well. 
So you have been doing a lot of drafts, and I think you've got some notes on sideboarding for us here. Yeah, so I think this is an, a good week to do it because I don't think this is enough for a full hour's worth of, of content. And we are, you know, winding down the format. Next week, Cube will be out on Magic Online, so we'll probably be touching on that. And then I think uh, we'll be in spoiler season for Ixalan. So we're we're in the, the, the sunset days of uh, Hour of Devastation. Jeez. I did want to talk about some sideboarding rules in general and use some cards from this set to sort of highlight that because i think this is a really interesting set for uh sideboarding and uh certainly with the advent of leagues on magic online like you are rarely if ever incentivized to hate draft you are often incentivized to grab cards to make your deck as flexible as possible so um i think the sort of like big billboard cards for this topic are going to be the defeats the cycle of defeats um because these are we haven't seen color hosers like this in a long time like since i don't know like m15 or something when you had that cycle of uncommon cards that were like the enemy hate like there was like a red one that hated on white and blue you know what i'm talking about yeah there was the blue one that tapped like a red or green permanent that owen started main decking right oh yeah yeah. oh that's something that's different that's uh i think that was from khan's block but no, I'm t- there was like a, a cycle, like death, was it death mark? It's like the one black to destroy target green. Green or, creature, or, yeah. yeah. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, so there there are like these sort of like no-nonsense color hosers that we haven't seen in a while. So like now we've got the cycle of defeats, and not all defeats are created equal. Sort of like the red and the white and the black ones that, uh, for better or for worse, kill uh, creatures of that color unconditionally, right? The black one sort of just does it. The white one needs it to be attacking or blocking, and the red one needs it to have toughness five or less. But all three of those are, like, pretty high picks. Well, I think it's interesting, too, from a design perspective, like, why they made the green and the blue ones so much worse. Like, did they feel like green and blue were already good enough colors that they uh, yeah. or were worse colors that they didn't need to have hosers that were good against them like were they trying to nerf red white and black like why why is that the case i don't know maybe it's like a flavor thing like blue like i don't know what else is blue gonna do other than counter it and like but yeah, why can't green what is, and how else does green destroy creatures other than like fighting and there's already ambuscade i don't know i'm not a designer but i think that these cards should be taken a lot higher than they are like I'm currently at about drafting these just below taking the cycling deserts. Um, And I'm taking the cycling deserts pretty highly. Like I would rank them probably in my top three, top four commons. Yeah, I think so. I routinely see these cards wheel and I think that's probably wrong. Yeah. In pack one, it's a little more defensible because I am a little hesitant to pick these unless I know I'm in the color. But once I know I'm black or white or red, I'm actively seeking these cards out. Yeah. So if in a set like this, there are these sort of like color hosers, I think you want to be grabbing these if you can cast them, because when you bring them, as we've said many, many times on the show, when you bring these cards in from the sideboard against decks where you're going to have targets, they're going to be some of the best cards in uh, your deck. Now, I think it is also important to not just be like, I saw swamps on the opposite side of the battlefield. I'm bringing in Liliana's defeat because... If you have not, just like this killing a Kenra Eternal is not where you want to be. You want to be bringing this in to deal with cards that you are having difficulty dealing with or you want to make sure you can deal with. You're not just siding this in over another relevant spell to deal with half the creatures in their deck. Because you might find you're playing against a black-white deck that Liliana's Defeat isn't dealing with. The threats you need to deal with are all white in your opponent's deck. So I think you want to make sure you're thinking about that when you are in your two or three minutes of sideboarding yeah for sure 
The next category I want to look at is enchantment and artifact removal. So just as you're playing game one of your match, you want to make sure that you're looking at cards in your opponent's deck and thinking about what you've got waiting for you in the sideboard. So are you seeing artifacts? Are you seeing enchantments? This is a big category of cards that you're probably going to have some access to destroying in your sideboard. So certainly in our devastation, we've got Forsake the Worldly, Descender's Deliverance, Manglehorn, and Violent Impact as options to blow up opposing artifacts and enchantments. And luckily, this set doesn't really punish you for bringing these cards in because three of the four of these cards have cycling on them. That sort of makes a lot of this conversation interesting, I think, is that so many of these cards have cycling on them. I know that this has sort of been discussed in depth because Amonkhet had these cards as well. But these, you do not get punished as much for bringing these in because if you don't see the target, you can just cycle it away. But I really think you want to be looking out for enchantment and artifact removal just because there's so many, like certainly in, in blue and white, you've got Unquenchable Thirst, you've got Desert's Hold. A lot of people are running removal. There's the Wall of Forgotten Pharaohs, Edifice of Authority. All of these cards are really good includes and really pains to see on the opposite side of the battlefield. Yeah, and I think like extending this to a more a broader sense, a lot of these cards like Manglehorn was just not a good sideboard card in Amonkhet because there weren't really artifacts that you were interested in killing other than Edifice of Authority. Mm-hmm. So I think format dependently, like you need to also be thinking about like are there good artifacts and enchantments that I'm going to need to kill? And I think the answer to that is yes in this format specifically. There are a lot of artifacts and enchantments that you're interested in killing, so you should also be looking to make sure you've got access to these in your sideboard too when you're drafting yeah so this is another thing is like when you're looking at picking cards and you know you have to be gauging this as you're drafting which is way easier to do a magic online when you can see your whole pool rather than in real life i would imagine not as someone who ever does this in real life but you're gauging like how many playables do i have and if you're on track to be hitting enough playables then these cards are really good pickups over like replacement level creatures like do you really need another two two for two or whatever a three three for three these sort of like vanilla replaceable creatures that you could get something that's like slightly better or slightly worse but you could grab a descender's deliverance and slot that into your sideboard and know if i'm facing down that wall of forgotten pharaoh's deck i'm gonna bring this in and it's gonna be a doom blade or i can grab a forsake the worldly for their unquenchable thirsts or anything like that the next category i want to look at is if you're seeing a lot of flyers on the opposing side of the battlefield, that's another thing that you can sort of like be aware of. Oh, my deck's kind of soft to flyers, but that's fine because if I do face a flying deck, I'll be able to bring these in. Now, a lot of these cards, or I guess all of the cards I have listed, are all green. Um, so Stinging Shot is the big one here. Uh, that is the three minus one minus one counters that also has cycling for two colorless. It's also a couple tricks in Spidery Grasp and Gift of Strength. And then Giant Spider, Old Faithful, 2-4, Reach for 4. These are all good options to bring in against opposing flyers. I do think Giant Spider is probably the weakest of these because a lot of the flyers you're seeing are either going to be 3-3s or 4-4s that this is going to either bounce off of or not block super effectively. Yeah, that's interesting. The other three, I think, just like thinking about like Angler Drake or the um, the 4-4 White Angel. Ominous Sphinx. Oh, Angel. Oh, yeah, Ominous Ferrari. Sphinx. Exactly, yeah. That all those cards are don't match up super well against Giant Spider, but it is an option for you if you're seeing, I don't know, Nimble Obstructionist or the, uh, uh, what's it, Avon Initiate. Um, <laughs> I'm forgetting all card names right now. <sighs> don't laugh at me. How dare you? Let's do name that card. Anytime. I'm the reigning <laughs> champion. How dare you? That's a dagger. 
I think another uh, note about stinging shot would be if you're late in the pack and you're not green, you could even consider picking that up if you've got cards like Trampler's Amulet or like maybe you've got an Evolving Wild and you could, if you're really soft to flyers, play that in a pinch because it's got cycling too. For sure. So the next category I want to look at is Graveyard Hate. Now this certainly won't come up in every format, but in this format with Aftermath and Eternalize and even things like Wander and Death or Gravedigger to recur stuff from your graveyard or cards that care about spells in your graveyard like Enigma Drake or Warfire Javelinier, you may want to bring in things that can mess with your opponent's graveyard. So Feast of Scarabs is the sort of biggest, I think, surprise from the sideboard because you often think of this as just cycling for a black but i have nabbed three embalmers or eternalizers from my opponent's graveyard or responded to their wander and death or responded to and use it as a combat drick against an enigma drake right being able to remove up to three cards from your opponent's graveyard at instant speed is actually pretty relevant in this set against some decks there's also disposal mummy uh, the two in a white this goes pretty late in the hour pack so you can usually grab these for your sideboard and this is the thing that can just grab a card out of the graveyard and i think this is generally like pretty good if you see a couple eternalizers from your opponent's deck and then ruin rat as just is probably going to end up in your main deck but if it's not if it's sitting in the sideboard you may want to consider bringing this in uh again if you see those kinds of things from your opponent that card is the bane of my existence <laughs> it's so much trickier than i thought it was going to be yeah because like if, if your opponent's got it on the other side of the battlefield and let's say you've got like I don't know, Adorned Pouncer in your hand. You need to get Ruin Rat off the table before you play Adorned Pouncer, ideally, because if you play your Adorned Pouncer, your opponent's just never getting rid of their Ruined Rat until Adorned Pouncer's in your graveyard. Like, there's right. little sub-games that go along like like that, I think, a lot with Ruin Rat. For sure. Um, and that's sort of a general thing of, like, facing a kind of deck. So if you're facing down an aggressive deck that is, like beating you down but doesn't seem to have maybe a lot of card advantage or maybe doesn't seem to have any mid or late game, We've been talking about life gain the past few episodes, this is the amount of incidental life gain that is in this format. Side note, today I played against someone who had three Aven of Enduring Hopes, three Solitary Camels, a Baleful Amit, and Approach of the Second Sun. Wow. Like, they were just starting every game at 35 life. <laughs> it was absurd. So that kind of stuff makes aggro decks really tough to win. So things that might be sitting in your sideboard that can gain you life, like Scrounger of Souls, Solitary Camel, Dune Diviner, even if you're desperate, Oketra's Last Mercy, I have seen be able to do work against some sort of decks. So I think just being aware of like, all right, my opponent is sort of beating my face in a little bit here. How can I combat that? I know if I can get to turn eight, I should be okay. How do I get to turn eight? Well, you got to gain some life. What do, what do we got next on this list? Yeah, there's some tap effects. If you're playing against uh, lots of people that are using removal at, that taps things or fan bearer type stuff, unquenchable thirst, those things. There are several cards that you could consider sideboarding in that specifically hose those type of cards, namely the untap effect combat tricks, spidery grasp, and active heroism and jurors resolve. Uh, those are three like one-shot effects that if you get unquenchable thirsted, maybe you use it. Maybe you're fortunate enough to eat a creature on blocks, and then you can leave that creature untapped for the rest of the game as a blocker. Mm-hmm. And then repeatable, the one that really hoses Unquenchable Thirst, is Dauntless Haven. Pretty miserable if your removal suite is three Unquenchable Thirsts and your opponent's got a couple Dauntless Havens in their deck because that card just turns into a must-kill threat for you before you can actually expect your Unquenchable Thirst to do any work. So I think those are all very relevant sideboard cards against against the tapping-type effects uh, as far as removal is concerned. Yeah, and now, of course, all of these are not 
unmain deckable, right? These are all cards that would be fine to see in your main 23, 22, 24 cards. But these are also cards that could not make that main deck and might be sitting in your sideboard. So we're not only looking at things like just, I feel like when people think about sideboard, they think of naturalize or plummet or like these sort of like things that, well, I don't want to main deck them ever, and I will then sideboard them if I see targets for them. But these are cards that are in more of a gray area, things that you might not feel like fit the kind of deck you're trying to play. And then when you see stuff from your opponent, like, oh, I am going to swap out a couple solitary camels for these Dauntless Havens because I've seen three unquenchable thirsts, that kind of thing. Right. Not They're not a stereotypical sideboard card, but they're cards that are making, they're making the matchup better for you. So hence, you should be bringing them in out of your sideboard, even though they're not exactly labeled as a sideboard card yeah we've been talking about x1s a lot this format that sort of a a defining feature of this that like there are a lot of powerful x1s but there's also a lot of powerful cards that punish you for having creatures with one toughness so if you're seeing things like that from your opponent you may want to bring in blazing volley i mean i think you and i are pretty high on grabbing blazing volley out of the amonkhet pack if we're in red just because it's such a a plus card when you see some Oketra's Avengers on the other side of the board. What are some other good things to bring in against X1s? Proven Combatant blanks a lot of X1s. Like, it's pretty awkward for your opponent playing blue-red spells if they play their Firebrand Archer and you've got a Proven Combatant sitting on the other side of the, the battlefield. Like, what are they going to do? Open fire your Proven Combatant? <laughs> Maybe. <Right. laughs> like, it just feels bad. Yeah. Feral Prowler is another one that brick walls X1s super well. That card has continued to go up and up for me. And Blur of Blades is just another combat trick type card that may make your main deck maybe not but if you see you know some spellweaver eternals or some firebrand archers on the other side of the battlefield maybe you swap that out for something in your main deck because it kind of turns into a premium removal spell against those cards yeah for sure another thing i think you want to be aware of when you're looking at your opponent's deck in game one or game two before sideboarding is what their expensive spells are like if they're gearing up for that sifter worm how can you deal with that and if you don't have like great removal for sifter worm for some reason, then you may want to look to either counter spells or discard to take care of them. So something like countervailing winds, which I think is a, again just is generally a main deckable card because of its flexibility of cycling. Um, but certainly cancel, I think, is not super main deckable these days. But grab that out of the sideboard. You can probably set up a turn where if it's in your hand and you see your opponent's on six mana, they're getting to seven. If they land that seven drop, you're in trouble. So pass with cancel up and you're probably going to be able to deal with it if they've got it and if they don't you can move on Um, another way is to get that card out of their hand before they even cast it so with unburden maybe doomfall lay bare the heart all cards that i think are on the cusp of making your main deck but you want to be on the lookout for if you see that bomb that you can't deal with once it sticks the battlefield how can you deal with it otherwise yeah, another note from the GP. I was reading the Nino decklist, mm-hmm. and somebody had like a Jund, or maybe it was one of the red black players. I don't remember. One one of the Nino decklists, like in the notes for the GP, it said like they'd asked them about sideboarding plans, and one of the guys said he had a whole nother deck built that he sighted into in one of the rounds against overwhelming splendor and something else. I don't remember. Just cards that his deck absolutely could not beat. Mm-hmm. So he sighted into a deck that had counter spells, like changed his whole deck in sealed, which is a thing I think that is more common in sealed. Uh, than in draft, obviously, because you have way more playables in your sealed pool. But uh, pretty cool that he had the other deck built and had the the foresight to see that he couldn't beat those cards, so sighted into a deck that could interact with those cards profitably for him. Yeah, that's crazy smart. I mean, that's very true. Like, if you there there is sort of times where you just like, well, I don't, I'm not equipped with cards to deal with that. So what what else can you do? Well, I can build a different kind of deck, maybe, or I can maybe I'm supposed to be slotting out 
all of my top end for these like derpy two twos and three threes because that's how I'm going to win. I'm going to hope to beat my opponent by curving out on them before they can land their overwhelming splendor or whatever. The last category I wanted to look at was if you're seeing walls or creatures with like high toughness, low power, which we do have in the set, right? We've got the wall of forgotten pharaohs. There's Dune Beetle, there's Vile Manifestation early in the game, there's Ancient Crab sometimes. I think bringing in the two equipments, Dagger of the Worthy and Honed Kopesh, these can really help to push like your Catcher's Avenger or your Ronus' Stalwart over the top when it's attacking and being brickwalled by these 1-4s or 0-4s repeatedly. And maybe if you've got a couple extra combat tricks in the board that you're not playing, you may want to bring those in, the things that, that are boosting power and toughness pretty heavily, like the Gift of Strength or the Act of Heroism, those kinds of things. Yeah, and the combat tricks will help you from having to use your premium removal on those walls, too. Like, you don't want to be using Ambuscade to punch through a wall. You want to be using the Gift of Strength that you cited in. Exactly, yeah. And I think just the, the last little bit to look at here with sideboarding, and this isn't unfor- this is unfortunately not super relevant in this set because a lot of these sideboard cards have cycling on them but generally you can sort of play a like next level metagame with your opponent like if you see that let's say you're playing some walls and they're siding in a manglehorn and you see them land manglehorn in game two and it's just to deal with your two wall of forgotten pharaohs well in game three if you go to game three you can think about taking those out and making manglehorn a pretty bad card in their deck so maybe you swap those two walls for two other two twos in your deck in your sideboard and now you have no targets for their manglehorn and you're forcing them to play this weird three mana two two that they may be like incentivized to hold because they want to wait to get that two for one to kill your wall that you don't even have in your deck anymore so you can play this sort of like anti-boarding game of like okay i've seen them bring in hate for this card can i take that card out and make that a dead draw for them it's a pretty niche scenario, but is something I think you should be aware of. Yeah, I think the most common way I've done that in the format is like, as far as anti-boarding is X1s. Because I think a lot of the cards that deal with X1s don't have cycling. Yeah. And I remember even in Amonkhet, like against Cartouche of Ambition, there would have been times I would have cited out X1s in favor of just 2-2 two, two derps because Cartouche of Ambition eating your X1 was so backbreaking. You maybe have to take out your Red Crop Spearmaster or what have you and sometimes your deck just can't afford to do that like sometimes you're all in like blue red spells can't afford to take out its firebrand archers and spellweaver eternals but if you've only got one or two cards and it can blank a couple of cards in your deck it's absolutely worth it i think to cite out like maybe two x1s if you see like a cartouche of ambition and a blazing volley out of your opponent because you can turn those cards cartouche of ambition into certainly a less powerful card and maybe even make blazing volley like which doesn't have cycling dead right i mean cartouche of ambition as a Two and a black enchantment that gives something plus one plus one and lifelink and puts a counter on something is not super exciting. I mean, it's still good, but when it's incredible is when it kills something. Yeah, that's when it's backbreaking. So if you can stop that from happening, then you can certainly mitigate the loss that you're feeling when they cast that card. Yeah, so I do think there's still opportunities to anti-board, just maybe not as, as many as there would be in another set. But that's a concept that you could apply to future draft formats that are not going to have cycling. Right, yeah. So I think we'll certainly, I think, revisit this concept again with specific cards from future sets. 
and maybe more specifically like when you want to be taking them or give some scenarios of well you're between this card and you've got this sideboard card in the deck it's just so dependent of like how many playables do you have what does your curve look like etc etc that it's hard to do that in depth on a podcast but those are the sorts of things you want to be thinking about if you think you're going to make playables and you're looking at a card that is replacement level versus a card that will be powerful out of the sideboard i would go with the sideboard card right i think like for our for our grading scale i think a general rule of thumb for me like in most formats would be if i fairly confident i'm making playables i would be taking sideboard cards especially good ones over like 2.5s maybe sometimes even a three depending yeah. on the, the power level of the sideboard card i think i agree with that yeah good place to stop the episode there i think so i think that's good all right uh we're not quite sure what we're gonna do next week so we'll be brainstorming and if you've got any good ideas for an episode you'd like to hear uh, shoot us an email at lordsoflimited at gmail.com. Also, huge shout out, as usual, to Salty Pretzels for our intro and outro music. He's actually streaming right now, or was like an hour ago. He bought some new uh, voice plugins for his garage band that he's super psyched about, so I really want to go check out the, the video on demand for that. Oh, nice. Yeah, I got to go check that out. If anyone wants to get in touch with me or Ben, you can find us on Twitch and Twitter. I am at twitch.tv slash Lord Tupperware. Ben is at twitch.tv slash Mr. Metronome. Mr. is all spelled out, M-I-S-T-E-R. We are under both of those usernames on Twitter as well. Get at us. Send us some deck lists. Send us some questions if you got them. And also, uh, this week I launched a YouTube channel. So I have one draft video up there. Unfortunately, I don't have like a clean url for that yet as a, a new youtube user but uh best way to get those videos is going to be from twitter i'll be posting uh links whenever i put up a new draft video there but so there is is one draft video and you could probably search either on my twitter account or search on youtube for like my name or lord tupperware hour of devastation draft should be able to find it there yeah i'm super psyched i've already got a plan for these draft videos I am going to stockpile them for the Wednesday downtime so that I can still have Lord Tupperware on my lunch break. Ooh, that's some good tech right there. Yeah, because I got totally owned by the downtime on Wednesday. I was like, <laughs> I got home on Wednesday and I like really wanted to like hang out on Twitch. Like it'd been a rough morning and you were nowhere to be found because it was downtime. And I was like, oh, this is awful. So YouTube solves my problems. I'm going to be still lunching with you on Wednesdays, even if it's not live. That's great. That's great. Perfect. And we already said uh, the email address. I think the best thing, if you want to help the show out, if you're enjoying the show, please continue to tell your friends. Spread the good word. Yeah. Yeah, that is really... Word of mouth is our, our best way of advertising at the moment. Thank you all so much for listening, for your feedback, and we'll catch you next week for another episode of Lords of Limited. Yep. Thanks, everybody. See you later.